Hey, and welcome to the Scottsdale Podcast. We are currently in a series called, Did God Really Say? Enjoy the message. Well, good morning. We don't always get introductions like that. Like, that's, that's a little abnormal. Um, but we're, we're so glad that you're here today. Uh, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're so glad that you've chosen to join with us today. If you're watching us online, we're so grateful that you've chosen to, to invite us into your living room to worship and exalt God together. Now, today we are finishing a series, a, a seven-week series where we've been over the last six weeks examining in our Bibles, Did God Really Say? There are a lot of cultural expressions out there, some that are very appetizing and intriguing that are attributed to God. And, and over the last six weeks, we have been, we've been trying to find out, did God really say that? Did God really say those things? And what we've learned from God's word over this time is that he says a lot of things. And today is no different. We're going to look at a cultural phrase and we're going to, we're going to discern from God's word whether God really said it. Now, this one uh, is one that about 50% of evangelicals believe. They would admit that this is something that they have as part of their worldview, what they believe is true. So, so if that's true, then there, maybe this is a, a hidden one somewhere in the Bible that, that a lot of people believe and that we might be able to accept. The actual, the actual statistic is that 42% of evangelicals believe this. So in a room this size, there are about 250 of you that this statement you may believe. You may embrace it. You may live as if it is true. And today we're going to find out, did God really say this? Are you guys wondering what that statement might be? All right. So that statement is this. We all worship the same God. 42% of evangelical Christians, those are people that believe that Jesus is the only way, say that we all worship the same God. Now, some of you may have heard this in a different, a different way. It can be posed in a couple of different synonymous experiences or expressions. One is this. It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. As long as you're sincere about your belief, it doesn't really matter what you believe. Now, there are some proverbs that are out there that kind of hint at this same, this same idea. One is a Hindu proverb, and it goes like this. There are many paths that lead to the same summit. So there's one summit, but there are many paths that could get us there. Now, there's also one that's a little bit more culturally familiar with, with all of us. So it may be one that you say on a regular basis, and it is this. There are more than one way to skin a cat. <laughs> now, I'm not advocating for cat skinning in this in this area, I don't want anybody reporting me. But really, who would even think about that? Like, who would skin a cat? And not only one, but who would think about multiple ways to skin multiple cats? I mean, this, there are some sick people in our world today. Sick people out there. What I want you guys to see about this is, as it relates to spirituality in our world, religiousness, spirituality isn't the problem. People all over the world are spiritual. Our, love, our world loves spirituality, in fact, but our world does not love exclusivity. That's why Golden Corral is popular. There's a buffet. You can go and you can get whatever you want. But you give people one menu item and that restaurant's not going to be 
in business very long. Reality is that we don't love exclusivity, and their challenge in this is this, that the religions of our day do not offer multiple ways. They are different in their claims of truth. They make exclusive truth claims, and this isn't new. This reality that we want to worship something is is rooted in our own uh, history. The challenge is that this has existed since Adam and Eve chose to sin in the garden. This desire to worship other gods is presented over and over through the pages of Scripture in the Old Testament. We see the God of Israel in contrast with the God of gods of the nations. We observe a clear instance in this in the book of Acts. So if you guys would go ahead and take your Bibles with me and turn to Acts chapter 17. We're going to start here in Acts chapter 17, and we'll conclude in Acts chapter 17, but along the way we're going to go to a few different places. So if you'll turn to Acts chapter 17 with me. We're going to read verses 22 to the beginning of 24 today. Here's Paul. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Would you pray with me as we begin this morning? Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we examine it today, that you would open our hearts and our minds, that you would, you would confirm in our hearts the exclusive nature of your word, and that you would comfort us that you would challenge us to share with our neighbors. And Lord, I pray all these things would happen as we study your word today. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Now, as we looked at this passage already in the beginning, I love how the apostle Paul finds common ground with the crowd. Don't you love this about Paul? He doesn't start out by bashing them for their false worship. He doesn't start out with his guns blazing. No, he starts out by saying, you know, guys, we're, we're really not that different. You and me, we're, we're not we're not that different because what I notice about you is that you are very religious. I notice that you are very religious. And here's a question for you guys. Do you, do you, do you realize that everybody in the world is religious? Every person in the world, whether it's the atheist that you work with in the cubicle beside you, or whether it is uh, the person who lives in the deepest and most remote jungle of the world, maybe even one that we've not even found before, everyone worships something. Everyone is religious, and we know this even as we've looked uh, through Acts, but in the passage immediately preceding this, Paul has already addressed two very different kinds of people, two very different groups of people. He talked with a group of people called the Epicureans. Now, Epicureans were a group of religious people who were materialists. They were the, the atheists of the day. They didn't believe that there was anything beyond what they could touch, taste, smell, and feel, right? The things that they could observe with their senses were the only things that existed. And he's also addressed a people called the Stoics. Now, the Stoics were people that believed kind of everything is God, where they were more of a pantheistic religion. Uh, so as we see this, we recognize that we all have a system of belief. We all have a religion that we embrace. And this system of belief leads us it defines what we think is most important. 
You see, if you're an atheist, if, you, if you're an atheist, you've embraced a worldview that says that there is no God, that there's no God that exists, and you've committed your life to living in that way. If you are a pantheist, someone who believes that everything is kind of God, uh, such as Hinduism, you believe and have committed your life to a system of, in Hinduism, some 33 million God-like figures out there. So we see that everyone is religious. So whether it is the self-worship of our culture, whether you worship the sun and the moon, or whether you worship the triune God of the Bible, we all worship something. It's ingrained in us. And Paul started there. He said, I, I, look, I know you guys are religious. I can see it everywhere. You have services. You have structures. You have liturgies. You do different things to show your worship. So I know that you are worshipers, even so far as this. You don't want to miss out on one God. You don't want to, you don't want to offend one of them. So you have this statue, this, this inscription that says, to the unknown God, just so you don't miss out on one of them. You see, Paul finds common ground with people. He finds common ground in the reality that we all worship something, but then he quickly departs from that reality. He quickly departs from that, and he helps us to see a foundational truth that should shape our lives. He says this, it is natural to us to worship some God. It is impossible to say that we all worship the same God. It's natural to us to worship some God. It is impossible to say that we all worship the same God. Notice how Paul does this in verse, the end of 23 and the beginning of verse 24. He says this, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God, the God. In this one statement, these two words, Paul makes a clear break from atheism, a clear break from atheism. He says, the God, the God who exists, in this universe. He makes a clear break from pantheism, the singular God who exists and is knowable. So at the outset, we've already made a distinction. It is impossible to have a God who doesn't exist and a God who does exist at the same time and both of them be true. It would be like me trying to convince you of this reality. Here this morning, I exist and I don't exist at the same time. And you're looking at me with nodded, nodding heads and affirming that that is some kind of reality that we actually live in. It isn't. I can't exist and not exist at the same time and in the same place. You see, these are mutually exclusive claims. They can't all be true. So with this in mind, I want us to explore three reasons today why it is impossible to say that we all worship the same God and why the God of the Bible stands alone as the true and living God. The first truth that we see is that it is impossible for us to say we all worship the same God because only one God speaks. Only one God speaks. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. You see, the God of the Bible is a speaking God. He speaks to people. He spoke the universe into existence. He spoke to Adam and Eve. He spoke to Abraham and to the fathers. He spoke to Moses and through the prophets. God is a speaking God. If we do an overview of major world religions, we see that this is not the case. While 
Virtually every religion has a sacred text, uh, a scripture of some sort that they use. Many, like Buddhism and atheism, don't even ascribe a belief in a personal or God at all. So their, their sacred texts are primarily just sayings, things that can help people in life. Religions that do ascribe to some kind of a deity, like Hinduism, they have the Vedas or Islam, the Quran. These texts are not direct communication from God to man. The Vedas, for example, are, are thought to be eternal truths that ex- exist out in the universe and, and somebody attained them through meditation. The Quran was written by Muhammad in 610 AD after what is described as an angelic, uh, an angelic tr- transmission from the angel Gabriel to, to Muhammad from Allah. In neither of these cases is there direct communication from God to man. There's always somebody in between, some other thing in between. In fact, in the Quran, it says this, it is not fitting for man that Allah should speak to him except by inspiration or behind a veil or by the sending of a messenger to reveal with Allah's permission what Allah wills for he is most high and most wise. It is not so with the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible speaks. It's a completely different story. A personal God who is not far and distant, but who is near to people. He speaks directly to the prophets. He speaks directly to people. But not only does he speak through the prophets, the God of the Bible speaks to us in person. He speaks to us in person. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. I want you to notice something unique about Christianity here. God becomes a man and speaks to us in person. It's not just through a messenger. The author of the message becomes the messenger and speaks to people in the flesh. There is no other world religion where God becomes a man to tell us about himself. Now, I want to show you the difference here just quickly in, a, in an illustration. How many of you guys have kids? How many of you have children? All right, so how many of you have a couple of children? Yeah, okay. I'm not going to ask how many, but uh, you you've maybe have had this scenario before. We try not to do this very often, but how many of you have ever given one of your children a direction to go tell another child to do? How many of you have ever done that? So go be kind of like the telephone thing to go tell somebody what to come back and and understand. So we've done that a couple of times, not many, because you know what happens, right? It turns into a fight. Inevitably, there's a fight and you have to go and undo the mess. But let me set the scene for you here. Uh, Let's just imagine that our son Silas is outside jumping on the trampoline. He's jumping on the trampoline, having a great time. And our oldest son, Isaiah, comes in to get a drink of water from playing outside. And I say, Isaiah, if you would please just tell Silas whenever you get back out there, that I want him to come inside for just a few minutes. I want him to fold the clothes that just came out of the laundry for him. Just very simple. Like, isn't it like scorch the earth kind of huge thing? I just need to just come inside and fold the clothes, okay? So Isaiah, very excited about this message. He takes it out there. He says, Silas, dad wants you to come inside and fold the clothes, right? Clear, clear the same thing that I said, but you know what happens whenever Silas hears that message? He says, you can't tell me what to do you're not my dad. I don't believe you. I don't believe that that is true. 
So I'm standing there a few minutes later, and I'm thinking, I know that I just told him to come get, look outside what Silas still doing, jumping on a trampoline. So I go out and I say, Silas, didn't Isaiah tell you that I told you to come inside and fold your clothes? He said, yeah, he told me that, but I wasn't sure if it was true, and I wasn't sure if it was an authentic communication from you. Like, I didn't know it was real. But when I came out and told him to do it, he knew that there was no doubt that it was true. There's no doubt that it was authentic. You see, only in Christianity does the one who communicates through the prophets come to confirm and complete the message in person. You see, he doesn't come and change the message. He doesn't come and say what the prophet says was wrong. He knows he comes and he confirms it. All that they said was true. All that they said points to me. All that they said is about me. He comes to confirm and complete the message. And what we see is that he says a lot about this. What does he say to us? What does he tell us? We know that he says a lot of things. He tells us about himself. He tells us about his character, about his nature, that he's holy, that, he's, that he is God, that he is, that, he is, um, that he is holy in his character. He tells us about ourselves. He tells us that he created us in his image to reflect him, to be a representation to a watching world of, of what he's like. He tells us that we've failed to do that. He tells us that we are sinners and that we need a savior. He tells us that we all have a problem. And this is another area where religions around the world understand this general truth. They understand that there is a problem, that there's an issue with humanity, but their answers always come up insufficient. This is the reason why. Because only one God saves. Only one God saves. Their answers are insufficient because every other world religion notices and observes this problem that we are messed up. Things are a mess in our world. People are not good. There's a problem. But here's where the problem always seeks to find its solution. In me. In me. How can I be a better person? How can I fix the world? In an example, Judaism, you have to be righteous and engage in deeds of loving kindness to others. In, in Buddhism, to attain nirvana, you have to walk the eightfold path. In Islam, you have to perform the five pillars and other good works to make sure that your scales at the end of the day, the good things outweigh the bad things. In Hinduism, your karma has to be, has to be great. You have to have good karma so that in this cycle of life and death and rebirth, to try and get out of that, your karma has to be has to be always good. Here's the problem. With all these systems, there's no definite problem. There's no definite problem. There's a general problem. We've done bad things. There's a general answer. Do good things. But the problem is, how many good things do I have to do to outweigh the bad things? How many of them are there for me to do? I heard a story of a Hindu man who converted to Christianity. And whenever they asked him, they said, what is it that led you to convert from, Christ, from uh, Hinduism to Christianity? And he said, one of, the, one of the reasons was this. He said, I'm a businessman, and I deal with banks, and I, and I get loans out, and I have to pay them back. How many of you guys have ever taken out a loan, maybe on a house or a, a boat or a car or something like that? Yeah, you guys, a lot of us have loans. He said, 
I do transactions with businesses all the time. And I take out loans and I pay them back. And, and every transaction, I know two things. I know how much I owe and how long it's going to take me to pay it off. He said, in Hinduism, I don't know the answer to either. I don't know how much I owe, and I don't know how long it's going to take me to pay it off. What a terrifying proposition to know that there's a problem, but to not know what the answer is, to not know how to get myself out of the problem. All I have to look forward to is an never-ending cycle of, have I done enough today? Have I done enough this week? What's my ledger look like? Do I have too many bad deeds to outweigh the good deeds or, or vice versa? You see, there's good news, guys. We can take heart because there is one and only one God who saves, and he saves us first by helping us to see that we have a clear problem. He clearly defines this for us. In Romans chapter 3, the apostle Paul writes this. He says, now the righteousness of God has been manifested or made known to us apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, we've all failed to live perfectly before a righteous God. You know this in your own life. I don't have to convince you of the fact that you've done sinful things. I don't have to convince you of the fact that you don't always live looking towards God and seeking to desire his purpose in the world. You see, we all sin. Not just you and me, but everyone everywhere has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But what does this mean? It means that we have failed to glorify God by worshiping him only, by serving him and giving our adoration and our praise to him alone. We have sought to be God rather than treasuring his lordship. And not only that, we have made our lives a mockery of being his image bearers. Our actions are unrighteous by choice, and we know that there is a penalty for this. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Because of this, we are under the holy wrath of a just and good God. So we know there's a problem. We're sinners. We know there's a penalty, eternal judgment. You see, sincerity is not sufficient for salvation because it minimizes the seriousness of our situation. It is, it is not sufficient because it, it minimizes how serious a problem we have. Good enough is not good enough. Strong enough is not strong enough, nor will it ever be. But does God present us a solution? Praise the Lord, he does. And friends, it's not this. It's not try harder today. It's not try harder next week. No, his solution is Jesus. His solution is Jesus. There is a definite solution which upholds God's righteous character and allows him to be a justifier or someone who declares us righteous, and his solution is the cross. Paul continues in Romans 3. He says, and we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just 
and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Martin Luther calls this the sweet exchange. The sweet exchange. That is the mystery which is rich in divine grace to sinners, wherein by a wonderful exchange, our sins are no longer ours, but Christ's and our righteousness of Christ, not Christ's, but ours. You see, our acceptance with God is not based on our ability to earn God's favor. It's based on the authority and sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. His sacrifice satisfies the wrath of God. That is the big word, propitiation, that we just saw. And it is the grounds upon which God can forgive us of our sins and credit us with his righteousness. That's the word justified, that we are counted righteous, declared righteous in the sight of God. I heard an illustration that I think just captures this so perfectly. The, the author said, uh, as it relates to every other world religion, it has to be answered, salvation does, in the first person. It's based on what I've done. I've walked the eightfold path. I've done the five pillars. I've been a part of the four Vedas. But Christianity can only be answered in the third person. It's because of what he has done. It's because he lived the perfect life that I couldn't. It's because he died on the cross to pay for my sin. I mean, think about the thief on the cross for a minute. Wouldn't you love to meet that guy one day? Whenever you get there noticing that he had never been in a Bible study, he had never been baptized, he had never gone through church membership, and you get there one day and you say, man, how did you make it? How did you make it here? I mean, you were cussing him, and then, and then you're here. How did that happen? I mean, that must have been what the angel thought, right? And the angel is there interviewing people as they come in. And he gets to this guy, and he says, what are you doing here? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I mean, I don't know because I don't know. So he starts stammering and uh, um, looking through his manual on how to deal with this situation. All right, I got to get a supervisor angel. So the supervisor angel comes in and he starts talking to him, asking him some questions. Okay, so let's just get this straight. I need to get a couple of clear answers for you from you here. Can you tell me about the inspiration of the scriptures? How we got the Bible? And the guy looks and is, I, what are you talking about? Okay, so an easier one for you here. Tell me about the Trinity. Huh? The... The what? Flabbergasted, frustrated. The angel says, on what basis are you here? The thief says, the man on the middle cross said I could come. Friends, that is our only means. That is the only means. It is because of what he has done. See, only one God provides a salvation that's not based on how well you obey or how well you work your way to him. He provides a grace-based salvation that depends on the work of another. But see, in a world that loves to exalt those who have made it their own way, you know the stories of the people that have made it to the top, who have, who have fought their way to be there, in a world that loves those kinds of story, 
Jesus requires us to do something that only the Spirit of God working in us would ever admit to doing or admit to believing. It's this, I can't do it on my own. I can't be strong enough. I can't be smart enough. I can't work hard enough to make it on my own. And all he requires is that we trust in his finished work. We trust in his obedience. We trust in him for our sins to be forgiven and for us to have an account to be credited perfectly righteous. I want you to hear this today. Salvation is exclusive. It's only found in Jesus. But today, you don't have to be excluded. You don't have to be excluded. You see, salvation is available to all who would put their faith in the finished work of Jesus. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to start praying a couple of times and then Jesus will accept you. You don't have to do a couple of good things to come to him. You come just as you are with all your sins saying, this is me. Forgive me, please, on the basis of what you have done. Very simply put, the saving grace of God is a gift that is unearned. It's undeserved. It is bought by the work of another, and it's freely offered to anyone who would trust in him and turn from their ways, embrace him as their Savior and as their Lord. But friend, that's not all. That is not the end of the story. You see, if that were, there would be reason to rejoice. We are saved. Our sins are forgiven. We're accepted by God, but it doesn't stop there. You see, because no other world religion can offer a definite salvation, they can't offer ongoing sanctification. You see, there's no help for you. There's no help in any other religion because there's only one God who sanctifies. There's only one God who sanctifies. Oftentimes we view salvation just as being saved from something, saved from hell, saved from judgment. The reality is that we are saved for something. We're saved for something. And as far as I can find, no other world religion offers help in your walk. I mean, it would be, it would be kind of problematic, wouldn't it? If, if my standing with the gods or a god is based on my work, it would be a little bit problematic for that god to offer me any help, wouldn't it? It would be kind of like the, the Peds era in baseball, right? You know, the asterisk that goes beside all of the records. Somebody had a steroid use, and so they were able to hit so many home runs or, or pitch certain amount of innings. Or with the Olympics, you think of people that have broken records only to find out they won with assistance. In fact, that would be the reality for any other world religion, that they were saved with assistance. Reality is, friends, we've already... We've already made the claim that we can't be saved with assistance because there's nothing good in us. We can't even do a little bit of the work. No, we were saved by substitution. Jesus in our place. But what happens whenever we are saved? When we trust Christ, something fundamentally changes about us. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians says that we are a new creation. We have gone from spiritual death to spiritual life. And as this happens, we're given new desires We're given a new direction in life. And this is the work of God within us. This is the work of God within us. Notice what Paul says in Philippians chapter two. He says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work 
for his good pleasure. It's God working within you to will. That is the desire to follow him, to work. That is the actual things that we are doing. But how does he do this? It's the very spirit of God that dwells within us. God, the Holy Spirit, indwells the believer and motivates him to, or her to live in a way that honors God. And we see in John chapter, four, chapter 16, it says, Nevertheless, I tell you, Jesus says this, the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Guys, this is almost beyond belief. This is beyond amazing. There's a God who speaks. There's a God who tells me about himself. He tells me about my problem. He tells me the solution. And then he transforms me by putting his spirit within me to convict me of sin, to lead me in paths of righteousness. And he does this so that we'll reflect him to a watching world, so that we'll do what we were created to do, to magnify his name, to help people to see what the true God of the universe is like. In no other religion does God change people's desires so that they want to follow. It's all about self-preservation. He he helps us to obey his word. No other religion does God indwell his people so that they can fight against sin, so that they can receive comfort during trials, during suffering, that he will uphold them and strengthen them, that he will help them persevere all the way to the end. Friends, no other God sanctifies his people. Throughout history, men... Women have been taking aspects of the God of the Bible and fashioning them into their own gods. We see this happening in Exodus. You remember the golden calf incident where Moses was gone and the people fashioned a a God they thought would represent the God of the universe. But as we've taken some time today to see, though it's natural for us to worship some God, they're not all the same God because there's only one God who speaks There's only one God who saves, and there's only one God who sanctifies, and there's one five-letter word, it's really a name, actually, that confirms all these truths. That five-letter word is Jesus. Jesus confirms this reality. You see, Jesus is the dividing line between true worship of the true God and worshiping false gods. Jesus is the dividing line. And do you know how he confirms this? Back to Acts chapter 17. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. I said earlier, and I'll say it again, while it's, worship, where it's natural for us to worship some God, it's impossible for us to worship, for us to say we all worship the same God because Jesus doesn't give us that option. He doesn't give us that option. In fact, that's what the religious leaders of the day knew. He was crucified for claiming that he was the way, claiming that he was the truth, that he was the life, and that no one could come to the Father except through him. And today, brothers and sisters, we must not leave with the flippancy related to the exclusive claims of Jesus. He does not say that he is the best way. He does not say that he is a good way. He doesn't say he's the best among many. He says he is the only way. He is the exclusive way to God. 
So now what? What do we do with this kind of a message? We've talked about the exclusivity of Jesus in a world that is pluralistic, that says everybody can worship what they want to, and universalistic, which says that everybody gets to go to heaven at the end of the day. I want to give you three take-homes for today. The first is this. We must all respond. We must all respond. There are some of you here today that aren't trusting Jesus for your salvation. You're hoping in your mind, you have this scale of good works and bad works, and you hope that at the end of the day, your good works have outweighed your bad ones. You're hoping that that is the reality for you. Today, God is inviting you to respond in faith to Jesus. He's saying that there is a definite problem. You've heard it. There's a definite solution. It's Jesus. There's a definite hope for you. It's salvation. Respond in faith. Put your trust in his work. He invites you to embrace his finished work, to become a new creation, to become a new creature in Christ where he will change you from the inside out and your life will look more and more like the Savior. For some of you are here today, many of you are believers and you live your lives as if God hasn't spoken. You live your lives as if he hasn't spoken. You reject his word on various aspects in your daily life. Today, God is challenging you to respond in obedience to his word. He is the God who speaks. His word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is active and alive today. If you have the spirit of God dwelling in you, he seeks to take God's word and to open your eyes to see the truth of it and then gives you the ability to obey. Secondly, rejoice. Rejoice. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you should be filled with joy. No other world religion offers joy as a, as a reality for the individual. Do you know why? Because you're always burdened with, did I do enough? There's no joy in wondering if I've measured up. There's joy in knowing that I'm accepted because of what Jesus has done. As believers, we should be the most joyful people that we are able to, to be encountered. In the midst of trials, we can count it all joy because we know God is working in us in the midst of even trials and suffering to make us more like Christ. There's joy. We should be a rejoicing people. And lastly, reach out. Reach out. As I was preparing this, there was a thought that came into my mind, and it was this. The question was, what might be more dangerous than someone who proclaims universalism? So somebody who would say that all roads lead to one, the same God. What might be more dangerous than someone who proclaims that and who embraces that? It's this, a Christian who is a practical universalist. So a universalist believes that all roads lead to the same place. A Christian is someone who knows the truth, but is unwilling to share it with others. Penn Jillette, many of you know who this is from the, from the magic duo Penn & Teller. Penn & Teller is a magic duo. He is a proclaimed atheist. He doesn't believe that there's a God, but he does have respect for people who evangelize. He says, he says I've always had respect uh, for people who proselytize or who evangelize. He doesn't respect those who don't. He says, if you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think it's not really worth telling them because it would make them socially awkward, he says this, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that ever life, everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? 
Friends, if we believe that Jesus in these is the only way, and that every other world religion does not lead to, a, to the summit, but to condemnation, then why would we not share this news with others? Why would we not be telling them that there is life available, that there is truth that is out there, that Jesus is the way? Reach out as you have opportunity to engage in dialogue with your neighbors and with your coworkers, with your family members. Live as those who have been saved from your sin. Now today we conclude our series, Did God Really Say? And we've noticed over the past several weeks at least two things. One, God does say a lot. He says a lot of things, and he expects us to know them and to obey them. He says a lot, and he desires for us to walk in a way that honors him. But we've also learned that there are multiple hashtags out there about what God didn't say. And as believers, we have to be wise and discerning as we filter out all the things in our world that come at us. So we know that God has said a lot. We know that there are always going to be hashtags in our world. What I want to challenge you and encourage you with as we go, let's not get caught up in all the hashtags that are out there. It's easy for us to get caught up in those and try and work our way through those. But as I thought about this reality, let's Let's be diligent at chasing down the truth of God's word first. Let's chase down his word and what he says. And then we can spot the things that aren't true pretty easily. That's how they do things with counterfeit money. Counterfeit uh, people that try to find out what counterfeit money looks like, they don't spend all their time looking at the counterfeits. They don't spend their time studying that. They study the real thing. And so then whenever you give them a counterfeit, they look at it and pretty quickly they know that's not the real thing. Believers, we should be like that. We should be so, so deep in God's word, pursuing after him, that whenever we hear something from the culture that says, this is what God says, we can say, uh-uh-uh-uh. That doesn't line up with what I know to be true about God. I know to be true about his word. I know to be true about what he desires for people. We can spot those things easily. See, as we dig deeper into God's word, the easier we can spot the counterfeits, And it'll be much simpler for us to be able to answer the question, did God really say that? Now, as we conclude this morning, we're going to ask you to stand. We're going to to sing together. We have these truths that we have embraced. Let Let us work diligently at sharing them with others, the matchless grace of our God. Let us pray it over ourselves. We're going to stand and we're going to sing. Before we do that, we're going to pray as we go today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you are God, that there is no other, and that we have access to you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you that you have given us your spirit, and today as we sing, we pray that you will be exalted and magnified. And as we go out, I pray that you would give us us confidence to share your word with others, to reach them with the gospel. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If this message blessed you and you now have a desire to follow Jesus, I encourage you to go to scottshill.org slash next steps so that we can follow up with you. Also, if you like the message, feel free to share it on social media with your friends and family. God bless.